it bothers me at such a level, some of this, because these are the same people that I was sitting next to in class. You know, these are the same people who taught me. These are the same people who like, I really believed in the science. You know, I really like, this is the scientific method. This is how you approach it. This is the objectivity that we're supposed to move forward. And so when I see the politics come in, it's like such a visceral reaction I have, you know, when I, when I feel like we're vacating, you know, our principles as, as professionals. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry has spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back to the Guns and Mental Health Podcast, sponsored by Walk the Talk America. I am Jake Wiskirchen. I'm joined by Michael Sedini. Hello, Mike. Hello. It's good to see you. And on Saturday morning, this is a first, Gianni, Dr. Pirelli. It's the first time that we're coming out on a Saturday for somebody. Oh, wow. And- uh- <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. And that voice you hear that's not me or Mike is uh, Dr. Johnny Pirelli, all the way from New Jersey, where it's almost lunchtime, but we just woke up here in Nevada. To introduce yourself to us, sir. Hey, everybody. I'm Gianni Pirelli, psychologist out of New Jersey, and I kind of practice in the New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania area, do a lot of trainings and publishing on guns and mental health, and Happy to be here with this uh, really groundbreaking podcast and uh, mission mission that's near and dear to my heart uh, over the last decade, essentially. So I'm very happy to be here, guys. Thank you. You are uh, you are kind of our muse, uh, as I as I wrote in the email asking you to come on because without your book, which I will hold up for the people watching on YouTube, the behavioral science of firearms, uh, which came out what 2018, 2017, 2018. 19 technically 19. i think it's uh we we wouldn't be where we are and it's essentially a 600 and some page uh the, one of the most comprehensive literature reviews i've ever read and it it basically gives uh, i mean it gives a lot of direction but one serious direction that created one of the <clears throat> i guess the most popular things that we do at WTTA is uh you exhort clinicians to get competent in the culture of what firearms is and what they do and who owns them and how and why and and all that stuff and it is a suicide interventionist uh pitch so uh we'll we'll get into all that for sure um i want to hear a little bit i i think about why you got into this and i do want to call attention to the the fact that uh this is the first time since uh the john petrolini podcast that three handsome italians have been on the same screen uh, together so and two of them from new jersey that's right <laughs> that's funny i wonder how many that's times funny. we can that's... dip into that well <laughs> so yeah well, thank you for that um so you know essentially and and again I, you can see this at the preface of that book which incidentally was supposed to be half of that size so uh, just goes to show you this this is kind of the 
arena that never ends as you know um, once you kind of start tapping into the where they call it wormhole or what have you it just keeps going and um you know as i actually wrote in that book i think one of the saddest parts was twice i had to update the this was the largest mass shooting in u.s history and so forth you know active shooting you know so that's the type of thing it is and as i said in the book it's it's a timely area and for better or worse you know it's a timely area and so as uh, legitimately, it was supposed to be about half that size. But again, you just keep going, right? You open one door th- and then three more things need to be addressed and so forth. Um, and so it's kind of like uh, fixing up your house or something. You know, you, you deal with this room and then all of a sudden there's three more things, you know, you have to do. You know, and it's kind of what I've found in this area. And, and, and I have a good uh, perspective on that, actually, because I have published before in areas like competency to stand trial and other hard hitting forensic areas, but they're very slow moving. You know, I can, you can really get into those areas and, and leave them where they are. And you can almost revisit it two years later and there's no difference in this area, as you well know, it's just constantly moving. Um, and cause it's hitting so many spheres, you know, politically and socially. And, and of course um, in the, in the training uh, arena as, as we're dealing with. And so in terms of how I got involved, as a licensed psychologist, as a forensic evaluator out of New Jersey, as I said, I basically started getting, I got one or two calls, you know, very early on in my practice and I never heard of it before. And I was someone who went to a top forensic school. I went to John Jay. I was actually in their first incoming class of their PhD program. Now, geez, I guess it's 17 years later or whatever it's been. So it's been a while, but I was actually in that first class. And so we had tons of forensic people and we were hitting all the subjects that I thought, you know, on predators and you name it, insanity, competency, you know, every angle of forensic, I thought. And then I get a call like this. You can imagine I was so surprised. I said, I don't even know what this is. What does it mean? Like I, I need a gun eval, you know, in New Jersey in particular, I'm sure we'll talk about people get flagged for very benign things, extremely benign things. And so I did what I thought I was supposed to do, which is I consulted the literature, but that didn't lead me very far because particularly at that point, everyone was talking about gun violence, quote unquote, but nobody was really speaking of, you know, here's how you do a gun eval for the average person who maybe was never violent or whatever the case may be. And so I, that didn't lead me far. And then I went kind of back to old supervisors and teachers and professors and what have you. And that fell on its face as well, because Nobody knew really what I was talking about or what to do. So, you know, this is kind of what I've made a bit of a career of in terms of my publishing and my practice and so forth is really getting into areas that nobody has really touched upon. And you actually see that with some of my other publications. And if you were to look at, for example, like third party presence in the context of a forensic eval, what are the effects of that or um, using internet, social media data in your forensic evals or, um, you know, vicarious trauma type of thing. I, I like to get into areas that people are not really talking about and, and get the conversation moving. So that this became that. And I had no idea it was going to come to this. Um, you know, a lot of people, they go in and say, this is what I want to be. And, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago what my life was going to look like, I'd say I'd be a professor perhaps, um, and maybe do a couple forensic cases, or I'd work at a state hospital and maybe do a couple forensic cases on the side. I had no idea I'd be in full-time private practice, group practice, you know, talking about guns and books and all this. I I had no idea, but I guess for me as an adult, what I learned to do is go with the organic 
growth, you know, not for certain things and try to go where things, you know, may lead you. And uh, I allowed myself to do that, frankly, you know, so it's really more of a credit. And if you see in the book, I believe I, I really, at least in the first book, the ethics book, I don't going to really get to, but I really thank the clients and the examinees and the patients and so forth, because it's really that it's them. You know, they thank me when they call, Oh, thank you so much for doing these evals. And it's really you, it's the need and it's the people who really need them. So it's really because of them that, I, especially out of New Jersey, that this need is there. And I just kind of went with the need, you know, really. And uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride and it continues to be. So again, I just really want to also thank you guys because um, I could yell into the wind for as, for as long as I want to, I've been doing it in other areas, you know, frankly, you know, I, I would be, I would be really uh, disingenuous if I sat here and said, you know, everything I do kind of takes off. No, 95% of the stuff I've read, people have not, I've written, people have not read, I'm sure, you know, it hasn't really taken that interest. So this happened to be an area that I guess resonated and had a bigger need. Yeah. I um, I want to highlight a couple things before um, I see Mike wanting to jump in, but I, I want to slow it down a little bit because our listening audience is pretty diverse and varied. And um, you covered some things or at least at least brushed up against a couple things that I think we need to break down. Um, the first one that hit my ears is that, and this is just personal to me, you allowed yourself to let natural order unfold and you didn't like force your own desires. I think that's really key to, to a lot of people finding peace in their lives. First of all, um, if you just kind of like say yes to the things that make sense and like, let go of your own ego attachments to like what you think is best, um, you're going to find life going a lot easier. But that point aside, um, I heard in there. I think, and this will lead to the second point. There's some unintended consequences of legislation, and I had a pretty negative experience recently. I've I've worked with our legislature for a number of years on a whole bunch of things, uh, chiefly rewriting a lot of laws in my own profession. Um, but recently, I went in with this very well articulate. I thought it was well articulated. I bounced off a few people. They said the same thing. Opposition to a proposed um, mandatory continuing ed credit requirement it was it's going to go into statute and it and I it I got in there and I was allowed two minutes and I I went in and I timed myself and it was about nine eight or nine minutes worth of testimony in this thing that I'd written and I heard 20 to 25 minutes of uh you know prop up for this proposed legislation and I was like I have the same level of pushback with the same level of research and evaluation, but I wasn't allowed to share it. And so it was like, come hell or high water, that piece of legislation was going to go through. And and I don't like that, uh, particularly in a pandemic where testimony is limited. But this is my this is my point is that we're going to end up with some unintended consequences out of this this legislation. And and I'm purposely being vague because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But um, but with red flag laws, that's a really well-intended piece of legislation by people who just didn't bother to do any research and then likely suppressed opposition in the hearings and the, and the work groups. Um, because now what we're finding is, as you said, there's some really benign reasons that people get flagged. And, and I think that's problematic. So when we, when we craft this, this policy, we have to consider all sides. We have to be very deliberate about it. And no matter what the apparent urgency may be, we have to slow down and make sure that we've considered all potential outcomes so that we don't end up un, 
unfortunately restricting people's rights or opening the door to grifters to come through and sell their wares or what have you, which leads then to my other, uh, I guess, uh, point that I heard, which is that people in the community reach out to a psychologist, right? And they say, I need an evaluation. And they're like, well, first question, you're like, what are we evaluating? Right. And, <laughs> and in this particular case, you didn't even know. You had to go find this stuff out on your, on your own. So um, I think I want to spend just a little bit of time educating the audience because I deal with this all the time, at least in, in my realm, where people are like, I need my kid to get an evaluation, right? Whether it's for uh, disability or, or intellectual delay or, or what have you. And now we've got this legal evaluation for, you know, competency or whatever. So can you talk a little bit about what types of evaluations that psychologists do and how that differs from talk therapy and all that stuff? I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. So in terms of, well, so you really have clinical assessments and neuropsychological assessments and so forth that a lot of psychologists certainly engage in, which are usually primarily for treatment purposes and making diagnoses and so forth. As a forensic evaluator, basically you can get into criminal, civil, or what I would say are administrative types of evals. And so criminal evals could be competency to stand trial, insanity, violence risk assessments and so forth if they're trying to plea bargain or for sentencing, Uh, civil evaluations or personal injury. You know, someone gets into a car accident, they start developing depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever it may be. And then you might testify in that case, or that could also happen in employment, harassment, discrimination. Of course, a lot of people are probably familiar, unfortunately, with custody, child custody evals and, and those types of things, workers' compensation. A lot of that falls in the civil arena. Then you have this kind of, you know, quasi forensic area, which is kind of administrative, you know, and a lot of times that could be fitness for duty. You've probably heard with officers. Um, It also could happen with teachers or really any job, frankly, Um, you know, where someone is raising concerns, mental health concerns, and then they need essentially a clearance, as they call it, quote unquote, to return. Um, Same thing for schools. You know, kids pose a certain risk violence risk, sexual risk, suicide risk, whatever they need. Again, kind of some sort of evaluation to return. And firearms in some jurisdictions like mine, sometimes are more administrative and sometimes they're purely legal, which I'm sure we'll get into. But in other words, if some of a new applicant in New Jersey, uh, for instance, is flagged and it's the report is intended for the screening police department, that you're still really in that administrative realm. It's not a legal case per se. The second they get denied, now you're at the prosecutor's, the county level with the prosecutor and the superior court judge. Now it's more of a legal you know, matter. And so you, you have these kind of different areas. So to your point, and when people call, and this happens all the time, and it frankly um, happens with attorneys who say, oh, I've been practicing for 20 years. This is what I need. And I'll say, well, that's, you know, you're trying to clarify the referral question. And say, well, that's not exactly how I interpret it. And, you know, it gets a little tricky sometimes as to what people need. And sometimes it's because of the referral source or the, I should say, the agency needing it or the person needing it is not clear. I can't tell you how many times. I mean, it's multiple times per day that we get calls saying, I just need a letter. The police department said, I need a letter letter. for my gun. I need a letter. I need a letter. And I say, well, that sounds very simple. <laughs> that sounds really simple. You just need a letter. And I tell my, well, the Second Amendment's only 26 words long. So, you know, that's <laughs> even shorter than a letter. Um, I'm like, what does a letter mean? You only need an ID to fly a plane. You know, I, what goes into it? You know, so 
that's really tricky. And, and we can talk about that as well, especially from, frankly, a business standpoint where they've been told they just need a letter, you know, like a checkbox. And now I'm going to tell them how much how involved this is going to be and how much it's going to yeah. cost and everything. And people get really thrown off. So um, we deal with that all the time where the referral question is unclear. But yes, as a psychologist, you can theoretically offer evaluation services in different areas. Some are more purely clinical and some start to get into that again, quasi forensic area where, you know, it can really lead easily into a legal matter. And some are obviously purely legal on their face, but as what I would say to everybody, regardless, even people who think they're not forensic is think about it. What I always tell people is anything could turn into a legal matter in one minute. In one minute, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, one of my earlier, I still talk about it, but of course the guns has consumed a lot of time, but we really used to spend a lot of time addressing standards of practice, forensic versus therapeutic roles and so forth. And what would happen is I would do these trainings and only forensic people would show up. And I was like, but it's really actually more for the non-forensic people, but people didn't understand that really. And I think maybe still don't understand that a lot. They think, oh, anything they tend to hear forensic, I don't want anything. In, I don't want anything to do with that. I have no interest in that. So I'm not going to pay attention. I'm like, no, you need to know. You actually need to know more than the forensic people as to when you're getting into that right. realm, because you may not want to be forensic, quote unquote, but guess what? 50% of people get divorced. A lot of people get into car accidents. And if you start to go down the list of how people can easily and always become legally involved. You know, they get hurt at work. You know, all those areas I just spoke about yeah. in terms of people say there's a very, very, very good chance that your clients are going to be legally involved at some level. And so when it, yes, when it comes to writing a letter for a gun, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as well, mental health and medical professionals quickly oftentimes just say, no, I won't touch that with a 10 foot pole. But then they'll quickly write a letter for disability or some other legally relevant area and, and they get to deep water at that point. Because if you look at, I just saying anecdotally, we're doing an actual empirical study on it right now, but anecdotally I've looked at New Jersey's complaints against professional psychologists and you have a fair amount of people writing those quote unquote letters and so forth in custody matters and what have you. So it's really the non-forensic people oftentimes who are going to inadvertently maybe just dip into that area. And so your point is extremely well taken where we have to be like crystal clear as to what our role is and our scope is. And sometimes it's not simple because you could, this is a very important point, uh, frankly, which is people think they identify a certain way. Oh, I'm forensic. I'm not forensic. No, you're, you're not what you say you are. You are what you do. So you could be practicing clinical psychology in the morning and forensic psychology in the afternoon. Right. And you can't play ignorance to that. You can't say, oh, well, I'm not a forensic person. No, no. If you've engaged in that work, you are now, you are now, um, is incumbent upon you to address those standards and everything else. Right. So, yeah. And if there's any clinicians listening to this, um, we have it spelled out in our ethics and I've studied, uh, to enough degree to know that across the the four major professions of you know drug and alcohol, professional counseling, marriage and family therapist, social work, um, and it's it's pretty much the same for psychologists too. If 
if you are treating someone, you can't evaluate them forensically. And if you're evaluating someone forensically, you can't treat. And that's that's uniform. And it's really important to know. I'm so glad you pointed that out because I, I'm always hammering on this in supervision. And we host a lot of interns and students here at my agency. And they're, they're like, you know, can I write this letter for this person? I was like, you can write what you've done. You do not prognosticate right. ever. And and Thanks. we've we've gotten in some hot water or flirted with hot water a couple of times with things like uh, car accidents and, you know, civil litigation. It's like, you know, so-and-so's PTSD was caused by, I was like, you got to be careful with that. <laughs> you don't know that right, it was caused right. by what they said it was caused by. So I really appreciate you saying that. And if I may, one one quick statement here in this handbook that, that we're writing. And, and, and again, I'm, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. I call it the therefore problem, the therefore problem. You're fine until you hit therefore, and then you have to stop, right? So you could say, Miss Jones was involved in boom, boom, boom. She's experienced boom, 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 blah, blah, blah. The second you get to that therefore, right, transition, you you better stop yeah. if you're not in that role, you know? So I, I kind of call it the therefore problem, you know? And it, it gives people, I think, kind of uh, a, a mnemonic, if you will, or something to kind of just remember that say okay yes I, exactly what you said i can explain things where i'm going to get into a problem is when i link it and, and when i try to link it therefore to a legal you know issue and so forth and um and people think you know with forensic work oh it's just clinical work applied to the law no it's not it's it's obviously a, its own specialty on, onto itself and there's a million different implications but once again the 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 pressure is out there you know in fact, in our practice, which is heavily forensic, we engage in certain like care management organizations and so forth locally for young kids in, in need. But they're really treatment evals and they're clinical, pure clinical. But again, that youth sometimes is also legally involved. And so then you get public defenders calling, sometimes the judge, and then we have to push back. And, and they're like, but wait, you're a forensic practice. I'm like, yes. But this evaluation was not that. And so it, it is difficult, but you really have to, you know, roll, roll in scope, roll in scope. That's what I always say is just stick to that, roll in scope in any given case and just uh, hang on to that. Because, again, the pressure can be real and attorneys and so forth. Um, I think it's throughout the country, but especially the state. I'm in New Jersey. I think we have 100,000 registered attorneys in a state, you know, this big, highly dense densely populated so yeah there's a lot i want to ask about that but i don't want to bore everybody who's listening and i don't want to be super selfish <laughs> mike i know has a, has a bunch of he wants to ask yeah one thing i want to point out why your book really spoke to me is when i first started walk talk america i had to go and try to find i was a little naive i thought hey the firearms industry can come up with some money and fill in some of the gaps that all the mental health side are saying like, Hey, we've lost all this funding and that, and you know, therefore we can't, we can't fix things or make attempt at it. And that sounded good to me. Right, right, right. Um, but then I quickly found out that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot out there. Um, and, and from what I could see from the, the, some of the organizations, they, they kind of took an anti-gun stance. I needed to find somebody that even if they didn't like firearms, they, they stayed completely neutral. Um, and I had read some other publications and stuff like that. And it just, it, you know, it was the same old thing. Uh, Rob Pincus actually said, Hey, look, you got to check this thing out. I, I, so I immediately order it and I get it. It's like a, uh, 
I said, holy crap, my Arizona State brain is not going to be able to process all this information. Uh, (laughs) But what I loved about it, what I loved about it was I feel like we're very similar. Obviously, we're from Jersey. We're super handsome. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, but what I loved about it is right from the jump, you come out and you start talking. And I I totally relate to it because I'm like, I, w- I didn't know anything about fire. Believe it or not, I didn't know anything about firearms when I got into the business. It was always my family's business. And I've said this before, nepotism was great for me, but I wasn't a gun person. Like I just didn't go to ranges. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of experience with it. And you flat out go into this. And I love the intro because right out of the shoot, you're just like, Hey, I, I kept an open mind, but I didn't really have, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. And then it kind of turned into this. So I think people need to understand, especially the listeners, that this is a huge influence on Walk the Talk America, even though we were, we, we, we were already set up and running. Uh, but this, this book is so amazing and people need to get it. Uh, I think it's a, I think it gives, it'll give hope to some of the people in the firearms community too, that not everybody on the so-called other side is going to be biased and can go into this and look, and there's so many different things in here. Um, I guess my question is, as, as you're going, tell me how, like, your, your, how you changed with firearms. You know, like, I know how it happened for me, right? I, I started to realize things, and I'm like, this isn't as bad as what everybody's saying. How did that – what was that jump like for you to where you went from, say, like, gun neutral? Sure. Well, again, so as you said, from New Jersey, we have – it might be 11% now, but it's around 10% gun ownership, right? So from the door – we have almost no gun ownership. We have, I think the second lowest carry in the country next to, I think Hawaii. Right. So you don't see guns in New Jersey um, growing up, especially at the time we grew up. Now, of course, back then it was a little different. You use the play guns and so forth, uh, which, which you can't really do much anymore, but that was as close as we got to guns, maybe once or twice, you know, a cousin who was in law enforcement may have somehow brought you to a range or something. And that was like a, once in a lifetime, like, wow, interesting thing. Now, I don't want to misrepresent. New Jersey definitely has uh, its fair share of people who have had a wealth of experience with guns. And of course, there are rural rural areas of New Jersey and hunting. And, you know, so New Jersey is kind of a microcosm of, of the U.S. in a way. It's a really interesting kind of state in a way. You can almost split it in half. It's kind of fascinating, as you know. But but so I really didn't have that exposure, though. I didn't have really family with law enforcement. There was no hunters or anything. I mean, I was really in the heart of North Jersey suburb. You know, 95% of the town I grew up in was Italian. It was an enclave at that time. You didn't hear about guns other than you were watching mom movies or something, you know, and, you know, glorifying those people probably at that time when you're young and, you know, good fellas and all this stuff. You know, so you didn't really know about guns in any real way. And so for me you know, I go through my whole training. I never thought about guns um, at all. And I go through my training and I get trained in the forensic arena and I, and I finish my doctorate. And even after that, no issue. I come out, I start my practice. I had zero thought or interest or anything about guns. And then a guy calls me and basically says, I need a gun eval. And I was like, I don't know what that is. What does that even mean? You know? And, and I started looking at the literature and everyone was kind of just talking about violence as they describe it. And I have an issue with that term, but we can talk about that. And, but all that stuff in terms of gun deaths and what have you. And of course I was familiar with the violence risk measures and so forth, but 
This was not a person who ever engaged in violence. So I couldn't even, if I did a traditional risk assessment on this guy, it would have been three minutes long. (laughs) There would have been nothing to talk about, you know, because he didn't, he didn't fit into any of that. The literature didn't apply. So then I got to call kind of professors and previous supervisors I had, and they had no idea really what I, what I was talking about or what this was. And that really gave me, initially I didn't really jump on it. Initially I was like, well, it's probably just an obscure thing. And I think I actually wound up doing the eval, but I did it kind of as a traditional risk assessment and it was a psych eval and it was probably fine, you know, and all things being equal at that time. But then again, I got like another call. And it's one of these things where, you know, you see it once and you're like, oh, that's weird. You see it twice. You see it twice. You start saying, wait a minute, maybe something more is happening here. And as I talk about a little bit in the preface of that book, I said, all right, well, I'm not finding it in the literature. I'm not finding it from prior supervisors. I got to go to the, the heart of this thing. I got to go in, in there, you know? So I went to the local gun range um, and I talk about it kind of in a humorous way. Although it's true. I went on a date with my now wife. And, um, and as I say in there, she shot better than me, which I understand is normal <laughs> for, for, for females oftentimes to shoot better than males, particularly uh, newcomers, I guess. That's what I've been told. But anyway, and I, and I met with, um, as I put in that book, Anthony Calandro is the local gun range here, uh, gun for hire and so forth. And, and I was really shocked, honestly, because I, I didn't know really what to expect, but I didn't expect that. I mean, his, his range was like immaculate and it was almost like, I don't know. I almost felt like it was like a, I mean, it is a nice, it was a nice place, but I'm just, it was so weird like to walk into that, you know, I guess whatever preconceptions I had. So then it just stuck in my head. And then a few years, a few days later, I called and I said, can we talk? And he was great about that. And I started asking him like, is this more common than I think? Because I'm getting some of these calls. And then it just started evolving, you know, pretty quickly. Um, And it's one of these things where once again, you think, What's the word? I, I think the term is called pluralistic ignorance or something. You know, I know it's a fancy term, but like, in other words, you're sitting in a class and no one raises their hands, but everyone has the same question, you know, that kind of thing that we've all experienced or, you know, even with a talk, anyone have any questions and everyone's looking and then one person or two people raise their hand and everyone starts raising their hands. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that and to the point now where we get gun calls, you know, uh, gun evals multiple times a day, many times a day. Um, it's just been a little bit like a wildfire and I don't think it's a new problem. I mean, we've definitely had an increase in applications and all that. That's for sure. But I think it's more of they didn't know where to go. And in New Jersey in particular, you know, we can talk about this, but the onus is on the, the applicant fully and then it costs money, like a lot of things in the legal realm and, and whatever. So, so that was kind of the way I got into it. And it really just started growing more and more. And then if I may, I'll, I'll say another thing about it, which is, when I really started getting into the literature and there were some people who started publishing in a similar way, the, the missing piece, and I don't mean in disrespect to them because they've done great work. A lot of these folks, I won't name them. Um, they don't, they don't practice though. And, and that's fine. I mean, not, not, not everyone necessarily can do everything, but I, I am in full-time practice and evaluation. And so a lot of the, information in the literature I found was just really not helpful at the ground level. And so we're, we're writing this handbook now that's supposed, that's going to help medical and mental health professionals in a, in a more action oriented way than that book was. But that book, just to say, 
I, I think I said to you, it was supposed to be half as long as it wound up being. But truly, the mission of that book was that it could be on anyone's shelf. And I, I think we probably all experience a similar frustration as, as we're kind of talking about is there was, I saw these like two sides, so to speak. And it, it didn't kind of make sense to me. It makes sense to me because you understand people tend to gravitate one way or another, but it didn't make sense to me why the information wasn't being shared. You know, and I understand politics and this and that, but it, I, I just, that really bothered me. And so when I put the gun proposal together with the publisher, which is Oxford, um, they were kind of confused in a way they were like, well, so is this going to be like, you know, have some sort of position statement? And I'm like, no, 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 it's not that. And I think Jake, as you point out, it's, you know, essentially like an extensive kind of literature review with, if you look at the last chapter, I then go into the main findings and then uh, suggestions for practice policy and research and what have you in, in each one of them. So I think there's a roadmap there that we really tried to put, but the rest of the book is really, this is supposed to just be a compendium on anyone's shelf. Literally, that was the mission. I don't care if you're in the most anti-gun group or the most pro-gun group or anything in between. It can go on your shelf. And that was the mission. That's what I always tried to stick to. Um, and, and that's kind of how it all came to be. And, and if I could say just one more thing or a couple more things, if you don't mind, just based on what you were saying, Mike, you, know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned early on about funding. And this is probably an unpopular statement, you know, to make because I, I came out of uh, strong academic settings and I have a lot of colleagues in her academia and so forth and grant fund, you know, grants and all this type of stuff. And but that narrative of there's no funding to do to properly do the research, I've really fought back against that completely because um, I'm evidence of it. Frankly, I what, from the day I got my Ph.D. till now. I've gotten zero dollars in funding. I got funding before that as a student with some grants and things like that you get as a student, you know, travel grants and this and that. I've gotten zero funding in the last 11 years or, or so since I graduated my doctorate, zero dollars. Um, every, all the books you're seeing, the trainings, the, the, the articles that I've published, um, anything you see, zero funding, zero dollars. I write it. I write before work. I write after work. I write when I can write and it's all organic in that way. So some research does require funding. I appreciate that. And yes, it's, you know, it's understandable, but a lot of research in this area does not because a lot of what people are doing is taking kind of two uh, databases that already exist and just kind of correlating them and what have you publicly available databases and so a lot of the research doesn't really require funding other than to say that you're paying people to do it, you know? Um, so that's a side note. And the neutral groups point that you make, um, I've run into that as well, where when you say, you know, you're seeing, you see a lot of for and against type of groups, but then you see those kind of mental health groups, those professional groups a lot of times are very quiet. I've had that. If you look on my website, there's a, been a, a number of interviews I've done and, and locally uh, in New Jersey, I should say, and you'll see that the state organizations, they don't say a word. They're so neutral and so diplomatic, which I think is a problem because I, I'm going to them and I'm saying, wait a minute, why are you doing this? You don't need to do this. The American Psychiatric Association has come out with resource documents saying that this law where you're calling police, for example, you know, on your own clients and so forth, you know, just to, just to see if they have guns uh, and you know, these types of things. They're saying, don't do this. 
it's not a leap to say, okay, we agree with the American Psychiatric Association or whatever, but they don't want to ruffle feathers, you know, politically, a lot of these groups. And, um, and that's why, honestly, um, I try to stay as completely independent as possible. Initially, not getting funding, for example, was like annoying because I was so used to it as a student. And I was like, oh, I think I should be getting funding or something. And then it clicked for me. I'm like, no, like, wow, I could be fully independent. You know, it's no offense to anyone who gets funding. I don't mean to, to take that route, but I'm just speaking for myself. It's become very um, liberating for me because... I don't have to answer to anyone. I could do, in my mind, I feel like I could do pure you know, scientific research and make statements. You'll see on my Facebook page, I come pretty hard at people, you know, professionally um, in my state, the governor and so forth. And it's not a personal thing. It's just, I, f- I can do that because I don't have a boss or somebody or a funding source to, to check with, you know? And, and so anyway, so. Yeah, that's great. Um, one of the, one of the, the chapters in the, in the book, I really loved, and there was a connection that you made and it blew me away. And and I want you to talk about this from the media and a gorilla in Cincinnati that everybody knows. I thought that was, <laughs> oh I thought my God, it, yeah. I thought it was amazing. If you can kind of talk about that for the listeners, that'd be great. Yeah. My, my recollection of that was I was speaking about the attention, the media attention paid to, was it that boy, I guess, who fell into the gorilla pit, right? Versus, um, you'll have to kind of maybe refresh my memory, but I don't know if I was comparing it to like Chicago. deaths in Chicago or something, shooting deaths. And you know, I hate to rag on Chicago. You know, I'm, I'm not big on like the low-hanging fruit type of thing. You know, I, I kind of try to be more creative and, and thoughtful than that. But it's so obvious, sadly, when you look at certain cities, pervasive shootings and and what what have you i mean it's just so unbelievable and i think the example i gave was the again the i don't know how many times was it 60 times more something you know media attention that 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 gorilla story had gotten that that boy which is in kind of a crazy story but the point is it's so sensational and what i talk about in the book and some of my writings is this concept that i didn't create this concept but it's certainly one that it has resonated with me as a writer and as a thinker and as a doctor in, the, in this area, you know, the worthy victim. And it's really bothered me. It's really bothered me. And with all due respect to even the presidents and former presidents and president Obama and so forth, you see the emotionality is different. You know, when you're talking about certain gun deaths, you know, and I guess it's human nature, so it's kind of hard to criticize people. But the same token, it's so obvious. I look here in New Jersey, for example. Again, I was really critical of, um, you know, what some of the stuff, and I have been, it's coming out of Rutgers, our state university, which is the, I think, second only uh, state-funded gun violence research center or whatever, um, which I have other issues with. But the, but the point is, the, the primary focus is on suicide. And it's almost been like the sole focus that if you if you read a lot of stuff that's coming out of there in terms of the headlines. Now, we know that that is the majority. And, the, and I'm, so I'm happy to actually see that attention. But it depends how you're giving that attention. It speaks to the example uh, we were just saying. For example, if you look at New Jersey, and I published this recently or posted this recently on Facebook, you can you can check it out. Now, I don't by the way, I don't make this stuff up. I go to the state data. <laughs> you know, I don't, it's no it's not like, you know, mysterious. I just go and pull the state data. 
because they start saying, I start seeing all these headlines, um, you know, uh, people who bought guns during the pandemic are more likely to be suicidal. Hold that, hold that up, Johnny. Associated with hold, hold that up. That? So, so we know you're not fabricating. Oh, hold yeah. It up. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I don't fabricate. I don't lie. People who bought guns during pandemic more likely to be suicidal. I don't even know how you find that out. And it says unsafe firearm storage increases the risk of suicide in houses with a firearm. Rutgers study says. And then here's another one. Handgun ownership associated with firearm suicide. Now, these are like, wow, these are really sensational um, headlines. You know, people who bought guns during a pandemic more likely to be suicidal. Uh, the only thing is, it's not true. <laughs> if you actually look at the study, okay, um, what you would find is nobody's reporting that. In other words, 0%. I put this, if you look at my post, if you... When they actually asked the people, why are you buying guns? Zero said, I'm buying them because I want to hurt myself. Right, right. You know, in other words, the majority say for, for safety, for leisure, you know, whatever, recreation, whatever it is. So, so where, say, where are they coming up with that? If, they're, if the people are not reporting it, see, because we're not mind readers, right? People always say, on cross, when I get cross-examined in court, the other attorney always says, but you got that from the person's self-report, right? So that's only... So basically the only way you get in mental health, I'm not a mind reader. I can't take their blood. At least we're not at that point, you know, whatever. So yes, it's, it's always going to be self-reported at some level, a thought process. We use the word thought process. That just means speech, how we got it from their speech. So we're not mind readers. So how could you know that people who bought guns during the pandemic are more likely to be suicidal unless they told you that or expressed that in some way? So this study didn't touch upon that. Zero of the people said they wanted to hurt themselves, and that's why they got the gun. So where are you getting this information from? Oh, one of the questions, you know, speaks of at some point in the past, did you have a fleeting thought of, you know, hurting yourself or something? And then that turns into a front page headline, you know, whatever. Or handgun ownership with firearm suicide. You know, again, Rutgers study. You know, so they're they're – they're you they're propping these headlines up with the backing of a major university but when you when you look at it you you say this is 80, a, a national survey of 81 people who lost loved ones no disrespect to them i'm really sorry about what they've been through but that's that leads to these type of headlines and so to go back to the gorilla example that's you know that's the biggest issue we have in a way um you know, remember, we're trying to educate politicians. We're trying to educate the community. We're trying to do We have to start with our own people, our own doctors, our own medical and mental health professional colleagues, because, God, I was, I was part of the New Jersey State Psychological Association for 13 years, I think. We couldn't get an op-ed. We couldn't get, we could not get an op-ed. We couldn't. And we were just, it was like pure formational throughout the state. The New Jersey State Psych Association, could get one. they're getting headlines every other day out of this new research center. So it starts to get like really concerning when we talk about sensational headlines and what have you. And, you know, it's people oftentimes, they not necessarily even going to go to the study that's being cited. And even if they can, they maybe can't discern it. You know, they're not necessarily trained in research methods and what have you. And so it's a big issue. But then when you go to the, the groups, as you were saying, Mike, they 
they stay neutral because they don't want to ruffle feathers. And um, it's to me, it's like, you know, feeding the crocodile. You know, it's really feeding the crocodile. When you talk about before, Jake, I think you were talking about unintended consequences and so forth. Because when you start feeding into headlines and legislation and, and, you're, and you're silent on it, especially as a professional group, well, then, first of all, you can't go and complain and say, geez, we don't have credibility. People aren't coming to us, you know, for our right. Well, you're not saying anything. If, if the only time you're going to talk is when it's Mental Health Awareness Month and, you know, kind of market it in that way. But when the, when the issues get difficult... And you step down and stand down, you know, you don't stand up. So, so that's an issue um, that I've been dealing with here. And I'm sure a lot of people are dealing with throughout the country. Yeah. I had an interesting, uh, I would say conversation with someone the other day and they made a statement about how many people have been saved from a red flag law or how many tragedies were stopped. And they had a number. And I asked the person, how do you know that? Did they tell you what they were going to do? And this person danced like Diddy around that question. And I thought in my head, see, this is the problem. You, I will accept that person told me I was going to go out and do a mass shooting. Thank God the red flag law happened. Right. Um, And it stopped me, but I just don't see people saying that, you know, or doing that. Um, it's a tough one. We put a chapter out. Um, a f- I, I think it just came out a few months ago and we're talking about gun policy and so forth, which, you know, that's another problem as a side note, we don't, we're not trained. We're trained to write scientifically a lot of us, but then we're not trained to write in policy terms and, you know, in, a, in that type of language. And so it gets really tricky for, and that's why you see a lot of people, the research doesn't translate. I mean, first of all, you have the political barriers and everything we just talked about, but then you also have the language is not properly written in a way that is, you know, really conducive to that type of thinking. But we did this policy chapter and at first the editors pushed back. They're, they're, they're great editors, but at first I guess they were kind of thrown off and, but then they, I pushed back again and they said, no, this is fine because you're supposed to push the limits a little bit in terms of our thinking and what I compared a lot the red flag concerns with was the see something, say something policies. Yeah. Right. Because I see it in that way. I see it in that way. And what I always say about like, we, that's a big thing over here, especially in New York, you know, before pre COVID you're going to New York a lot, you know, from when you're from New Jersey, as you know, and it's everywhere. If you see something, say something and what have you. And what I always would say is do People are like, well, what am I looking at and who do I tell, <laughs> you know, type of thing. And the best that I could come up with, because again, there's really no research on this stuff. Remember, and this is something I talk about a little bit as well. You have like, DARE. remember, drug abuse, resistance, education, you have these DARE programs. That was found to be ineffective. Now, in, in, its, in its initial form. Now, I don't have a problem that things are ineffective. The problem is it took 26 years for them to say that. Scared Straight was running for almost 40 years. Not only did they say it was ineffective, they started threatening states who used it. Remember all the Scared Straight, they would send the kids to the yeah. prisons. They said, if you use it, you could, be, you could lose your federal funding because it could actually hurt people. And we started actually seeing um, research come out in other contexts of like these PhDs, they call them, uh, potentially harmful treatments. Because the problem is 
with mental health in, in particular, a lot of times people don't think of side effects. As you said, unintended consequences before is a good term. Another term is like side effects and it could actually have a, you know, adverse uh, effect and what have you. But anyway, so going back to the policy, see something, say something, I started to say, well, what is this comparable to? And then I really started thinking about child protective services, you know, where people are making calls. I was trying to think of what, what parallel is there for people to make calls on neighbors, you know, or people they know with any regularity. So I really started thinking, okay, child protective services, right? And you see like ex-spouses and this one, that one calling. And I really started looking at uh, some of those numbers. And there's a lot of concerns, obviously, because th- there's a, when you look at red flag laws and they are, they do have a good intention, I think, you know, at least at, at some level, right? You have one major problem. Well, you have, you have a lot of problems, but you have one major problem. They're predicated largely on the fact uh, a false assumption, I would say, that people have mental health literacy and they do not have mental health literacy. In fact, if you look at health literacy, like physical health, it's really bad, right? You wonder why you go to your medical doctor's office and there's like sign, there's posters up over like basic stuff, like, you know, I don't know, a vaccine or maybe that's a, a sensitive subject these days, but, you know, it could be anything like here's your ankle, <laughs> you know, here's your you know, you know, if you think about what you look at, you know, when you're waiting for the doctor for a half hour in your, in your little robe, <laughs> freezing, freezing, and you kind of look around before cell phones even, and you're trying to like figure out what I should read. Think about what you saw in front of you. And if you actually look at the literature on health literacy, it's terrible, right? And we kind of know that. Mental health literacy is even worse, right? So this is what you guys are obviously doing. You're trying to educate people in terms of mental health, but it's really bad. So it's so bad that we have Mental Health Awareness Month, right? It's so bad that we need to de- dedicate a month to try to educate people. And we have all kinds of policies and, of course, and programs to try to educate people about mental health. Yet, these policies assume that people can detect it in others, a concern, and then report them. What they're not accounting for, and you see this again, if you take a look at the see something, say something stuff, the, they only talk about how many calls there were. In other words, they'll, they'll be very proud of that. And they'll say, we had 4,000, I'm making it up, you know, let's just say Manhattan. We had 4,000 calls where people saw something and they said something. And what I said is, that might be awful. In other words, they're equating that with high numbers is a good thing. That might mean you're falsely flagging tons of people. Higher numbers could actually be very, very bad, right? If we and we know we can get to a whole discussion about like you know false, um, false uh, allegations. Obviously, again, if you think of child protective services or you know false arrests, and you know, that or just, leads or, to just a whole or just straight up racial right. bias, right? Yeah. Like, oh, he looked. He, sure, looked, he looked weird. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's so that's kind of what you're dealing with, and and and. Incidentally, it is related to obviously stuff that's near and dear to us, which is, and, and if you look at that article that we wrote on um, the Lake Wobegon one, right, with the cultural competence article that we came out with a couple of years ago, that's another set of faulty assumptions that lo- a lot of our laws and policies are based on. The, the assumption that medical and mental health professionals are either inherently equipped to handle the gun stuff or... Uh, or that they're trained properly to do it. And, 
And that's over two, actually. That's not true in either area. We have a, now a well over a decade and a half of literature, empirical research showing us that the numbers are awful, even for medical and mental health professionals. Think about it. We've went to school forever, went to school 100 years. Every day in school, Jake, correct me, every day in school, you're either talking about HIPAA or suicide. So you're walking around worried if people are going to kill themselves and you're trying to shred every paper that anyone touched. Like, (laughs) you know, and I'm I'm being kind of funny. I know these are very serious things, but I mean, it is ingrained in your head that you got to worry about confidentiality and suicide. Even after all that, we're still not equipped, but yet my neighbor's equipped (laughs) to assess it, watching me take out the garbage, you know? Yeah. And in Nevada, (laughs) Because we just adopted a, an ERPO law at the beginning of 2020, as well as a uh, background check, uh, you know, expand a background check law to close the loophole or whatever that may be. Uh, it's a transfer right. law. Um, and at the same time, right, January of 2020, they both went into effect. And the presumption is that we have a clinical pool to address those issues. And we don't. We're leading the nation in provider shortage. Like we got patients coming out our ears. We can't keep up. And yet somehow we're apparently going to be shoulder tapped to do these like gun evals if and when somebody gets red flagged. Um, I, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess like law enforcement and the community, you know, intervention people all kind of know. And so they're like, we're searching for different options besides red flagging people. Cause I've had enough conversations now with police and, and some other practitioners where they're like, we, we can't be red flagging people because it'll it'll create this long series of this this ripple effect throughout the person's life first of all first of all but also uh, secondly the the clinical community we got nowhere to turn because nobody's what are we going to do with the what are we going to do with the property that got seized the gun right <laughs> or does that get stored um, you know the police aren't going to take it who's who's going to be the clinician who steps in here we're we we're not we don't have a bunch of psychologists. We're dead last, and we're not dead last by like a small margin. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a problem, and it was it was just poorly thought through by the legislature when they thought this. And I and I want to kind of turn into a different topic here, where we break down. Is the listening audience needs to know this? We teach this for a living uh, now with through our courses and whatnot. But red flag laws are more or less carbon copies of one another from one state to the next. There's little details like some states you have to be a family member or law enforcement to uh, submit the petition to the court. Uh, some states like your own, it could be quote unquote any person, right? And um, and that sounds very threatening. But um, but the, the bottom line is across all of them that I've seen, the path to rights restriction is very, very easy. The The evidentiary bar, the burden of proof is very, very low. It's reasonable suspicion for the random community person. For law enforcement, it's probable cause. But to get your rights back, the rights restoration, uh, the bar in our state is clear and convincing evidence, which is beyond, which is above and beyond, beyond reasonable doubt. We're all familiar with that, right? Beyond a shadow of doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, clear and convincing evidence is a step above that. So the path to rights restriction is very low. The path to rights restoration is very, the, the bar is very high. And along the way, we're supposed to be like in this community full of clinicians who just sit around with nothing better to do than to be shoulder tapped by the judge to come <laughs> in and do an evaluation. Um, that's a problem. We need to figure out a solution. Obviously, education training would be a part of that. But something else that popped into my head, too, is that 
these um, these clinicians who would ostensibly be doing the evaluation, I want to ask you this, because um, in my community, we can't find anybody to do a forensic eval. Provider shortage aside, nobody wants to do it because there's this person, maybe this is unique to Northern Nevada and the, the way we were t- trained at the local brick and mortar institutions, but, but we've got a head full of liability fears. And it's like, oh, I can't, I can't touch any evaluation of any kind whatsoever because I could get sued if something bad happens five minutes after I utter the, you know, issue the eval. And, um, and my, my pushback on that has always been, well, you put at present time, right. Or at this juncture, cause I don't have a crystal ball. I'm wondering how you deal with that firstly. And, and if that is a thing where you are, or if it's just unique to our region where people just like. Boo, hiss, you know, put the cross up. I don't want to touch it with anybody's 10-foot pole because I might get sued. Um, or if it's not a thing and you you navigate that. But then the second thing I want to know is how do we how do we train people up to do these evals or how do we rewrite the the ERPO laws so that that burden of proof is much lower to get your rights back? Yeah. So, it, no, it's a major problem in New Jersey. In fact, it's not even it, – it, it's, it's, it's such a big problem that we have difficulty even getting collateral interviews and information mm. from the sources. So, in other words, a mm-hmm. client has or uh, has asked their doctor, can you write this? They say, no, I don't touch that. Fine. I'm willing to fit, pay Pirelli, whatever he's got to do, yada, yada. You just got to talk to him or just get him a treatment summary or something like that. That's like pulling teeth. You know, so it, forget about writing the letter directly. A lot of times, you know, someone calls me and they say they're in treatment or something. I'm like, start now. I'm like, oh, I could see you, let's say, four weeks from now. Start now trying to get those records together because that could delay you significantly if that person is not cooperative. Now, usually we've been able to get there and get that information. But I've I've had a couple of people for sure where the providers just even refuse. And that's a whole other ethical issue on, on their end. But it's a really big issue. Look, in New Jersey, I think the way they got around it, Unfortunately, I was a big critic of this, um, but unfortunately, is they just removed the need for mental health, uh, any type of eval. So initially, when New Jersey came out with their red flag law, um, they had uh, the initial kind of draft and so forth. It wasn't passed, but the initial kind of drafts and what have you was you were going to have to get an evaluation. You know, there have to be an evaluation and it was a one year kind of renewal in terms of the petition and, and what have you, even if it was finalized and they got rid of both. They said, there's no need. The judge doesn't even need right. to consider mental health uh, eval. And it's, it's the, the um, rights restriction is in perpetuity. Although you could apply in the future to get them back. So they took, in other words, they just took the onus off themselves as the state. That's they how said, ours right, reads. That's, that's exactly gonna, how ours yeah. reads. Yeah, there's no eval. Yeah, that's all it they just, did. It's presumed yeah, they, that this. They said this you don't need sorry, we're talking over Zoom. That's what they did. That's what they did. The, the presumption is that the judge will interpret what clear and convincing evidence is, and that clear and convincing evidence would be something like an evaluation. But there is no, there's no evaluation language in our law. It's just show me your clear and convincing evidence that you're no longer unsafe. It's like, well, what does that look like? And what judge is ever going to rule just from his or her own bench? Be like, yeah, you look good today. You're clear eyed. <laughs> like, so where's the expert who's going to determine that, I guess, is the question. So my so it, it's a major issue. What I would say a few things. 
But I often tell medical and mental health professionals, and it of course goes back to our initial discussion of role and scope. I understand that people shouldn't do, and of course I advise people not to do forensic evals and what have you. But here's the issue they run into, um, they can run into for sure as these things start to pick up, is you're going to have people coming to you and say, well, you were good enough to get them taken away. How are you not good enough to get them back to me? Right. <laughs> and so, you, you know, you were able to write that fancy report or letter or note or phone call to say, I should have these or I should go to the hospital and therefore not have these rare, but you can't write anything to say that it's, I'm appropriate to have them back. Mm. And so that's number one. We haven't quite seen that and come out yet, but I suspect that it will come out. And so when I kind of teach um, our colleagues, I always remind them of the bi-directional uh, issue of of risk management, right? And not being too strict in terms of their thresholds on the front end, you know? Um, and it goes back to what we were saying before about educating people and being really careful about who they're kind of flagging in the first place and the things they're writing and the things they're saying. So that, it, you know, we're, we're a ways away from that. And, you know, look, the red flag law here is still new. Essentially, we're still seeing it play out. So it's, it's hard to kind of see. But we've had forfeitures, you know, obviously just the same in the past. And so what I can say with, with more confidence, what I've seen a lot of over the years, um, I'll get a call from a lot of times it's a woman. It's, it's, it's just anecdotally, this is what I've experienced. Say, I'm looking, my husband needs a gun eval. And that's always like a confusing call because I'm like, why are you calling, right? And she's like, well, a year ago, two years ago, whatever, I called the police. We're having an argument. I called the police, blah, blah, blah. And so I can't tell you how many evals we've had to do where it's a temporary restraining owner. It goes to what your point is. So easy to take the guns out because in, at least here in New Jersey, the second the police are called, that's the first question. Are there guns in the house? Boom, guns are taken. And for safekeeping, you know, quote, unquote, safekeeping. And a lot of times it's, it's the, the spouse is removed, right? You know, they'll say, hey, buddy, come on, let's c- come with us. Let's go talk. And then they go to the other spouse and say, hey, where are the guns? Can we just take them for safety? So they get somebody, you know, they get the low-hanging fruit again. So it's kind of whoever can agree, let me take the guns, safekeeping. And then it takes years, as you're saying, and thousands and thousands of dollars to try to get those rights back. That happens, you know, a fair amount. And so it's kind of a different discussion um, in terms of pushing back on law enforcement and, and the courts and so forth. But I would say is, you know, the age old discussion of is guns kill people, people kill people, whatever. Obviously we're not going to entertain that, but let's get into the more nuanced question. You know, what I've said in those cases is, well, why do you go for the guns first? Like even if the guns were on your list, right. They should be probably last if you were going with the science, right? So if you look at New Jersey, I obviously I don't know every state's numbers, but if you look at New Jersey's domestic violence numbers and the calls and so forth, we have about 60,000 domestic violence calls a year. Only about 100, only about 100 involve a gun at any level. Hmm. And less than half of those involve a fatality with any gun. Now, it's still a lot of people. Obviously, we don't want anyone to die, but my point is, Think about what I said about the list, the procedural list from the cops. You're going for the guns first. Well, what about the cell phone, the car keys, right? I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole like steak knife thing, but stuff. But if you really look at the domestic violence situations, they essentially involve everything else but the guns. 
So here's the other part that not only do go for the guns first, but the guns first and only. In other words, got the guns here. You want to fill up the streamer and I leave. It's like, well, what about providing them with something to help the situation? Or as I said, I mean, the other things that could be a problem. And so that's where you have the conceptual problem. And, you know, I hate to kind of, you know, take on law enforcement because sometimes people feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of attacking them. It's, it's not that. It's just the other problem you see is when these, legisl- when these uh, legislators pass laws, they, co- they constantly uh, immunize law enforcement. And that's the highest law enforcement corrections is going to be your highest risk group, um, military, law enforcement corrections, you know, in terms of firearm involved um, suicides, as we know, and, and other problems, you know, in, in, in domestic situations, what have you. So I just try, I just try to fight for consistency. Honestly, I, you know, I, I'm kind of always saying this. I don't really care how you want to run your society. I mean, I do care, but when I, when I speak professionally, I say, I don't care because who cares what I think, you know, in terms of my personal opinions. I mean, we could talk about that on, on a Friday night, if we're just talking, you know, as friends or something or, you know, acquaintances, but I'm not going to come out here and give my personal views. That has no relevance. No one cares about that. All I say professionally is however you want to run your society or your state or your region or your department or whatever, run it, but be consistent, be consistent and be in line. But this is what it goes back. When we talk about passing laws and unintended consequences. God, I remember when they passed the um, one law, in New Jersey where they, you know, are kind of duty to warn and protect law. They attached, in addition to doing all these things, if you think someone's at imminent risk themselves, you have to also contact the residential police department to see if they're a gun owner. Wow. Right. They just attached it to our law, which as I said before, is against American psychiatric association recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. When that happened, I did an interview. It's on the website. I did an interview at New Jersey TV, which is part of PBS. And they had the uh, bill sponsors on there and I wasn't on directly with them, but I did my interview and I was saying, you know, their intention is to stop mass shootings or whatever it was, you know, they kind of say these catch all type of flashy things. And literally I couldn't believe my ears, but again, maybe I'm naive. I couldn't believe literally the law just passed and they said, well, we, we can look into changing it. So that's the problem, right? So that's what I'm learning about politics. It's, Get it in, get it down, get it there, and then we could deal with it later. Again, we saw it with Dare. Get it in, build careers off of it. You know, all due respect to everyone out there. You know, run it for a quarter of a century, and then we'll worry. Oh, sorry, you know, it didn't work. Or again, you see this in other areas of legislation. So that's what I really worry about um, with our legislation and policies and so forth. Is it's kind of like um, no pun intended, I guess, but shoot, you know, shoot first, ask questions later type of yeah. legislation. And it's like, I thought, legis- I mean, again, this is pie in the sky, I guess, but I thought legislation is supposed to be based on science, not the other way around. We, when I was with the New Jersey Psych Association, we, we, I used to get calls a couple of times from the association. Hey, can you talk to this politician or that politician? Oh, are they creating a law? No, they've created one that's about to pass. And they want to see if your science fits into it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yikes. That's this is our this is what we're dealing with, you know? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And that was basically what I alluded to in the beginning about how frustrating it was to 
not have anything, anybody at the table to push back on any of this stuff when it was going into place. A few years ago, we'll go back to a, a, a CE requirement. The state right. legislature requires uh, mandatory suicide prevention training for all behavioral health professionals and medical professionals. And they started with us, I think, because they knew that we would go, okay, um, but <laughs> – we're we're the last ones to need that. I mean, it's like it's like requiring that Emerald Lagasse remember how to butter toast every year. Like that's we're literally the people who do this for a living. Why are you yeah, forcing yeah. this upon us? Sounds and good. oh, by the way, eroding the other things that we could be learning about. Um, and and so when these these pieces of legislation, these policies get pushed through right away without any um, real critical analysis or review or pushback, um, we end up, I think. Not only do, don't they work, it's really clear that these hastily conceived uh, policy pieces usually don't work because they are hastily conceived. They end up creating problems where there weren't any before. Now, here's yeah. the flip side of that coin. You and I should be celebrating <laughs> because it generates yeah. business for us. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. yeah. but I don't want that kind of business. I, I already told you, I have patients coming out my ears. Like I don't, I don't need any more business. What I want is a healthy, happy community. And I don't think we get a healthy, happy community by encouraging grift, which is exactly what's happening. Cause now I'm seeing people come to, uh, you know, licensing boards and the legislature saying, Hey, I have this, uh, training that I offer. Wouldn't your citizens really, really benefit from it if they were required to take it? And it's like, no. No, they won't. Right. Like, let's invite them <laughs> in to take it. So, what do we do? Well, we got to educate, and that—that's a—that's a public relations campaign at this point, which is you know podcasts and stuff like that. Say, hey, get, get really good at understanding the things that matter most to you, so that you're you're not just hastily picking up the phone and you know when you see something, say something. Well, what are you seeing, and what are you saying about the thing that you're seeing? Is it just reflex out of your own bias? Is it, you know, is it a blind spot that? has you scared um you know the the big mean guns must go away even though statistically there's no justification for doing so um it's it's got me worried but at least you know, i'm encouraged by the work that you're doing and some others are doing to say all right let's push back with a little bit of reason and not be so emotionally reflexive about it the invitation now has to be to clinicians for sure and firearms owners also uh, to to steep themselves in knowledge and not also be emotionally reflexive to the to the flashy headlines, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when you talk about the business side. You know, it's it's really tricky, and I it's funny because I always am really careful what I say um, out loud. You know, including on posts, social media, and different things. Because on the one hand. I obviously want to encourage people to go for help and all that stuff, obviously, when they need it. And that's critically important. But you got to remember, again, in certain states like mine, we're saying but not people get flagged for benign things. In New Jersey, if you go to any therapy, couples counseling, individual outpatient, anything, just weekly therapy, you're, you, you will get flagged in New Jersey um, and your application. That doesn't mean you'll be denied, but you'll be flagged and it was a all kinds of problems. I have people calling me with the most benign things you could ever imagine. So I'll, I'll spare the kind of war stories, but it, it goes to what you're saying before, you know, when I think of the business side is, but it, it also speaks to how we came into it. So we came into it because there was a need, right? So it's not like we invented something and now we have to find people to buy it. Right. <laughs> we saw, wait a minute, there's this huge gap 
we're trying to fill, right? Not we came in and everything's okay. And now we're creating a gap that we're going to fill, you know, which is kind of what a lot of people are trying to capitalize with these big headlines and stuff like that. It's outrageous, you know, and, and when you look at policies, one of the things that always sticks out to me is like, you know, if you look at the image, uh, imagery, I should say, the, the optics, I guess, is the fancy uh, buzzword in recent years. Look at the optics of when a law is passed. And, and this is, I don't care what side someone's on or whatever. There's a lot of high fives and celebration. And it, it's always kind of peculiar to me because I'm like, how do you know it's going to work? Doesn't like, matter. They it did may something. Not, it, it's like literally like, I don't know, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest sports person, but I have played sports and I think of it's like, Imagine you called a play in the huddle and you start high-fiving and celebrating at the time you called the play. No, like, aren't you supposed to wait to see the outcome of that? But it speaks to the issue of they don't do policy analysis. So the joke's on us as a society because when they don't do policy analysis or they do it 26 years later like D.A.R.E., everyone forgot about it. You know, we're all wearing our old beat-up D.A.R.E. shirts you know, to the parties and stuff. We forgot about who cared if it worked or didn't work or whatever. And so that's, look, society at some level, our society at some level has created demand for us at this point. And that's, that's good. And we're feeling that I believe at some level, the next demand that I, I really hope that people start pushing for is policy analysis is policy analysis. You, you have to, it's, it's nice to demand. Here's what happens in my, from my humble you know, bird's eye view, if I will, if I may, we kind of fight for what we believe in, whether we do it quietly or, or more vocally in public or whatever. But then once it's passed, right. Once it, the, the ink is signed, so to speak, or on the paper, then we kind of, a lot of people kind of just like walk away or whatever. No, that's when it starts. All you have to do, honestly, I don't care if you completely disagree, it was passed. Try to instead put the energy towards, you know, fighting it so much. Uh, maybe use like an Aikido kind of mentality. Say, fine, you want this? Just all I all we need is the policy analysis. If you require legislators to do policy analysis, it will help a lot because you will find that they're not, not gonna be able to do it a lot of times, or it's gonna be problematic. Quick, quick example. I was fighting with a certain state agency over these certain types of evals that they were doing. And they kept putting that they were doing pilot studies and pilot studies. And they were kind of just getting away with the language. So I let them kind of keep saying that. But eventually I said, where are the results of the pilot studies? Where are the results of the pilot studies? Guess what happened? They stopped using that term. They stopped saying that because it goes down to accountability. It goes down to accountability, I guess, is the word. And for me, what I would humbly suggest to people is it's fine if you want to fight kind of the opposing view, but sometimes you don't need to do that. All you need to do is say, fine, you win, you win. show me now. Well, I think it comes down and to you're ego, gonna, right? You're gonna watch. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it comes down to ego. You don't want to, you don't want to be wrong. People, people don't want to be wrong. Don't, people, yeah, it's, it's. Well, and just to speak to that quick point about you said the number of people. Um, no, we we have nowhere near the amount of people who could do the evaluations that would be needed in the proper way that they're needed. And so that's another thing I, I was saying before about kind of accountability is, well, if you say to 
you know, the state, let's say in question, you know, it was like, oh, you know, people are getting flagged and all this type of stuff. And, you know, everybody should get mental health evals. That's a popular idea that comes up for legislation over here sometimes. Okay. Well, again, who's going to do them, as you said, and it'll quickly be, it'll be obvious that it's not possible unless they want 10 minute evals, which they've done with like parole and stuff. You know, and again, people just take that for granted. If you think of like parole evals, they do these evals like 10 minute interviews half the time, you know, to decide who's released or if you, if that's what you want for guns, then that's what you're going to get is you're going to get 10 minute evals and a conveyor belt, you know, a hundred people just running through these things, but you're defeating the purpose, obviously. Unless that's the point, you know, I mean, and I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I, I could I could reasonably see because I've heard I've heard people make the argument they know that there's a provider shortage, they know these won't be yeah. done. It's purposely to restrict gun access. It's like maybe it is, maybe maybe there's maybe there's something more nefarious. Um, but I I also lack the evidence for that. Uh, so if I'm going to demand evidence for things, I'm going to demand it for people who speculate nefarious behavior as well. Sure. Like, well, show show me where this is. Where have you seen this in print? Did you catch some email from some legislator? You know, because right, right. absent that, it's just some dude's idea, and I don't, I'm not interested in entertaining that. So until that point, I'm going to presume everybody's got best intentions, and and there's not something sinister behind the scenes. Um, but it, it, to that point, though, it's it's like how could you? This is obvious. Like the same people who are clamoring for more access to care are the same people who are like just ignoring that there's not enough bodies to do the work. I don't, I don't really understand it. So if I were to make a, so I agree with you and, and, and just like a slight devil's advocate position, which again, doesn't take into account the forensic versus therapeutic role issue, which people don't understand, even in our own field, nevertheless, you know, community. Uh, here's the, the thing, which is a, which is a point I've made and I don't know how people answer it. Forget about if you want to do a forensic eval or not. Let's just put that to the side. You know, what people choose to do in their day, obviously, is their choice. But here's my issue. If you're, and I've said this to colleagues that I know well, you know, I'm thinking of a psychiatrist, for example, I've worked with in the past. How can you say that you can't, now whether you won't is a different thing, but how can you say that you can't assess someone suitability for firearm ownership and what have you, or whatever the question might be around related to firearms. And then in the same breath, say that a suicide risk assessment in a purely clinical context, one of the primary factors you need to assess is the presence of a gun and how that factors into their risk. How is that possible? If, if the gun issue is such a personally a biasing issue that you have to recuse yourself as you were saying before, you know, kind of 10 foot pole thing. Fine. That's actually an ethical tenant, right? If you're going to be personally biased, you should, but then shouldn't you essentially have to recuse yourself from all kind of suicide and violence risk assessment in crisis situations, because you could be sitting there as the ER doctor or the clinic or wherever you're working, even in your own practice. And what happens if a gun issue arises? Now, that's kind of shameless plug here, I guess, but I didn't mean to, but the handbook we're writing is for this reason is what to, it's basically, this is our model KAD, no ask, do what to know, ask and do when gun issues arise in clinical practice. We're trying to help again, get people to, to jump on that, you know, and be able to know those things. But this idea of 
I don't want to know about it. If you're going to say that, then, then humbly, you then you have to really basically, how could you practice? Because you don't know which client is going to come in with that issue. So what are you going to do on Tuesday afternoon at 3.30 when this gun owner that you didn't even know was a gun owner or whatever, or they have gun access or whatever the question is, they start presenting with these issues. What are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to just walk out, run away. There's nothing you can do. They're not asking you. Yeah, I understand it's easy and identifiable. If someone calls you and says, Hey, I need a forensic, I need a gun eval for the police. Yeah. That's easy to say. I'm not doing that. What are you going to do in vivo <laughs> when you're in the ER, you're in, you fill in the blank, whatever setting you're in. And this comes up, you know, this gun related risk question comes up. And this is obviously what you guys are doing is, is trying to educate how to ask the questions and this and that. But I really, I'm trying to push this envelope to say, look, you got to make a choice. You can't have it both ways. I'm not saying you, you, you should go out there and do forensic gun evals. I get that. And that's, that's something else, you know, we've developed as well. We've developed a framework for how to do firearm specific gun evals. They call it the, we call it the PF10, Pirelli Firearm 10. There's domains, this and that. That's kind of a separate issue. I'm talking about in a clinical context, gun-related issues come up. What are you going to do? Well, we've got precedent for that from uh, it was the University of Michigan or um, somewhere up in Michigan. There was a gal who was in a clinical counseling program, uh, didn't want to treat uh, a gay couple. So I'm, I'm butchering the thing. It was from, I don't know, 15 years ago. And um, and she got yeah. slapped for it. They they removed her from the program. She sued court sided with the, the program saying you don't get to discriminate based on personal preference. And that is literally exactly what you're describing right now. So these equal right. opportunity, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion trainings that we're, we're dealing with now, um, the more protections that are extended for more people, the more incumbent it is upon us as clinicians to be even more non-judgmental and more educated. And when you start denying gun evals based on your own um, proclivities, you're, you might land yourself in a civil rights lawsuit because you discriminated inappropriately based on personal preference. And I, that's a, that's a big problem. We all, we all need to be very, very aware of, and very, very careful when starting to draw these lines. I need to take that course by the way, because I need to, nobody's doing it and it's going to become a bigger problem. We need more bodies. So I, I probably should link up with you and take that course at some point and uh, learn how to do evals properly. Hey, by the way, I want to ask this because we we try to address this as often as we can on this cast is the economic disadvantage to these laws right um mike's favorite anecdote is you know if i'm single mother in compton you know working two jobs and i i just want to defend myself i'm not going to have the resources to go pay for a mental health eval or a psych eval or a gun safety eval or risk it whatever it is let alone the application fee to purchase the gun that's probably too far across town anyway because of you know various restrictions. Um, what is give the audience an idea of what uh, a generic evaluation for safety or risk might cost uh, you or anybody else? You know, bad. You don't want to know. Um, it's you know in the in let's let's put the slight caveat that I'm in the heart of the tri-state area and so forth out here in my Man Manhattan. So you know I know colleagues in different states you know, have wildly different prices because of the, you know, where they're at. But um, I could speak to, again, North New Jersey numbers. If you go for 
if you're a new applicant or a return applicant, and that's a whole other conversation because we get the weirdest situations where people are already gun owners and they get flagged. And that's a whole, that's a whole other probably day, but a general kind of applicant who needs a, a, a full gun eval report, you're looking at like 2,500 dollars, of course. And um, it could on a, on a forfeiture, you know, red flag, you start getting into some of that heavier stuff. And depending on the records, you, know, you could be in the 3,500 range for the eval report and then testimony. That doesn't even include testimony. It could double. So people will call me and I'll tell them, look, you have to understand something. I know they're asking you for a letter, but you're on the verge of being a prohibited person or you've already been denied and you're a prohibited person in the state at this point. And so now this is not just about a letter. This is your, you know, it's like asking someone for a letter to engage in freedom of speech or something. You know, I'm like, you need a full eval and report and so forth. You know, we have to go through everything. I don't know you from the next person. You know, it's going to be an eight, 10 page report, whatever. You know, the whole thing, records, interview, testing, collateral interviews, the whole thing, you know, that's what's going to cost. So really in New Jersey, I could speak to if somebody gets denied and they have to go you know, from start to finish, they could easily be at $10,000 between me and an attorney. I mean, it's just, but so, but there's not much we can do about that, right? Because in order for me to do the evaluation properly, I have to block off, you know, X amount of hours and do whatever I have to do. Okay. And it, it's really directly within the price range, at least around here. You know, looking at your general risk assessment, psych evals, you know, anywhere between two and four thousand dollars. If we're going to be typical, depending on what you need, you know, if you think about it, I mean, you know, these are 10 hour evals, whatever, with the report and so forth. So just do the math, you know, 10 times whatever hourly that someone will make. So it's very easy to get to those numbers. Um, and so the big the best thing I could say is it really comes down then to the department flagging people unnecessarily. And what I've always said is, you know, especially the police department. So in New Jersey, there are 565 municipalities, even for such a small state. So people tend to think, Oh, state by state gun laws. I say, forget about that. When people call me, I say, forget about that. I said, it's like getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. You have to think of it more in that way in terms of the discretion and variability. You know, it's town to town or even within the same town, you can be dealing with whoever's looking at it. And what I always push back at the police, I can't say it directly to them. I don't have that form anyway. But what I've said at certain times is, you know, how is it possible with all due respect to, to law enforcement? Um, and I have a lot of respect for law enforcement. But how is it conceptually possible to be able to say that you're leading the way in terms of active shooter drills and helping with risk and all this stuff? But this uh, person came in with the most benign phobia or generalized anxiety or whatever, was never related to violence, was never related to suicide, never related to risk. They just needed some help in that benign, again, nonviolent, non-suicidal way. You can't properly assess that in suitability, but you can assess the highest risk. So you can assess the potential school shooter, but you can't determine that this guy i had once called me irritable bowel syndrome he's taking anti-anxiety medication he needed a letter anything they flag anything because it's not it never is about the substance at that point it's more just about the liability you need a letter you need a letter you need a letter so what i would implore the departments to think about to the extent that they care is 
you are really putting someone in a rough situation when you flag them as to what you said in terms of financial. The only way to get around that is if you somehow put the onus on the state. And if the state had to actually pay those things, you show quickly, you know, the things go away. But to the extent that it's going to be on the petitioner, but the law, I mean, I've worked in forensic arena, studied in the forensic arena in the last 20 years. And, and you see this with resources. I mean, it's just unfortunate the nature of the legal system in an adversarial system. At what point does this become a, does this tilt and a class action suit is filed because the state i.e. the police, and it's not blaming police. I get that they they do what they think they're supposed to do. Um, I come from a family full of cops. I teach the cops out here. But I can easily see what you're describing, which is just just do the quick and easy thing, get it get it taken care of, and shuffle shuffle responsibility to somebody else, right? And and then these these firearms owners who are getting flagged for benign reasons all gather together over coffee one day, and they're like, "This is crap. This has cost us tens of thousands of dollars." for no reason whatsoever. And then a suit gets filed and says, this is discriminatory and you're, I don't know, disproportionately inhibiting our lives. You're, this is overly restrictive, whatever it is. And, and then the state is on the hook for all the financial burden that it placed upon its citizens. Almost like if they were, you know, indiscriminately pulling over uh, people and citing them with yeah. ridiculous, reckless driving <laughs> tickets. Right. Yeah, it's hard. Well, again, it depends, I guess, where you are. You're in you're in New Jersey. You're in a state that's completely unsympathetic to anything related to gun ownership and what have you. So that's your first issue. There are groups out here that fight vigorously uh, for gun rights. So maybe they might decide to take it on. But, you know, what I've seen and, and I'm just being fair, you know, I have to be fair. I'm objective. You know, it's funny because a lot of times people say, oh, you're pro-gun. You're, are you a gun actor? Are you pro-gun? I'm like, no, I, I'm really not. I just, I'm just following the law. You know, it's funny, especially in a state like New Jersey, you're either anti-gun or you're pro-gun. Like you can't just follow the law and the procedures, right? So I tell them like, no, it, it's not, I'm not in a box. It's just, so what I would say to the Second Amendment folks that work out here, and I have said this to them, is they really have to push, it's, unfortunately, it's on, their, it's on their shoulders too, you know, what's happened because you talk about the red flag laws before that don't, requirement to help the valves. Well, look, in all fairness, for years, they were saying they didn't want doctors and and so forth and, and mental health professionals involved, you know? So when you're telling people stay in your lane, you know, with all due respect, to me, my, my humble recommendation would be, forget about it, this is your lane, this is not your lane. Force people to be competent and qualified. Again, you know, I don't want to bore your audience, but we I could sit here and you, they could look at my publications I could show you a laundry list of empirical evidence to show that they're not. And so instead of this is your lane, you know, this is not your lane, understand please that there are some people, us, for example, who have developed competence in this area. But if you're going to force and push people out and say yes or no, then just like most laws, then it's just going to come down to who's in power. When this group's in power, it's going to be yes. When this group's in power. So when I used to consult with the state organization, I would say, please, we're going to make policies, even at the, you know, kind of inter, uh, intra, I should say, organizational level. Um, let's make policies assuming that the person you disagree with most is in charge. 
right? That's the only real way to make a policy, right? Because then you're focused more on the procedural aspects rather than what you're going to get, what you're going to do. But that's what we keep having. We have this no compromise, no compromise, no compromise. And so, frankly, I've had a lot of support from Second Amendment communities, some of them locally, but they're not going to really push it either because there's that fear, I think, of, you know, you give an inch to take a yard, you know, that kind of mentality plays into politics and what have you. So, um, you know, that that's a real thing. But um, the 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 red flag stuff uh, again and and what you're talking about, about the cultural what you were saying before about the cultural competence piece. That's why we put it in that framework that this is about cultural competence and you know, again, we can't have it both ways. You can't, as medical and mental health professionals, on the one hand, say this is an epidemic, right? That word is being used. And at the other hand, say it's not it's not going to be a part of our training or it's not a, a part of something we do. <laughs> I, I don't even understand how. So what is it? Is it is it the most is it one of the most important things or is it not? Because you're not matching it with your education and training and willingness to, to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad you said the thing about stay in your lane. Cause I use that all the time. As a matter of fact, I lead with that usually when I'm speaking to mental health clinicians, he just comes right out and says, you stay in your lane. He leads <laughs> with it. No, I, I, I literally just say that one of the dumbest things the community did was tell doctors who are on the front lines of this to stay in their lane. Yeah. And I think it's helped. And, and the reason why everybody listening needs to understand I have a certain method or approach to bring people together to find solutions. And it's not one of the pride from my cold, dead hands. It, it, it's literally understanding people um, and what, what upsets them or, or where the issues are. And sometimes you got to bite your tongue. You just listen, take it in. You don't emotionally react, but we had two shootings last week and a half. And I'm so thankful and proud that I, I handled the things the, the way I did because I have professionals or people from these organizations calling me now and saying they're emotional, you know, and I say, I'm, I'm upset too, but they're saying, Mike, please explain this to me again. Why, why this is a non-starter for the two a community. And I love that because when we kind of go through it and have this nuanced dialogue, uh, they say, okay, okay. I remember now. I get it, right? Because they're not living in our world. We shouldn't expect them to. But that's just the whole point is if you continue to do things like say, stay in your lane or get over on that side of the room, don't talk to me. You're never going to get, you're never going to win anybody over like that. I've never seen it happen. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. There, there is a responsibility that the 2A community needs to take. And some of the, some of the, the conversations that have broken down that have led to this yeah, with all due respect to the um, to to some people in the in the community uh, that I've even spoken with, again, you're actually letting them off the hook, right? So you, you feel you might feel like, oh, I'm I'm shutting them down. You're not. You're you're shutting the communication down, as you said, but you don't have any jurisdiction over those folks. So instead of going back to what I said before about holding people accountable and actually doing the kind of Aikido approach, right? Which is bringing the energy in and saying, okay, where's this leading to, right? You're taking an authoritarian approach 
you know, because I told you so or something, but the problem is they're not your kids. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even work with kids anyway, or anyone that's authoritarian approach, but they're not your kids and they're not your subordinates, right? It's a doctor that you have zero jurisdiction over and you're saying stay in your lane. So all you've done is now they're going to just ignore you because that's how people are going to react when you yell at them. And so they're just going to do whatever they want. So actually going to be more effective saying, yelling at someone and say, stay in your lane or saying, no, I want you to be, I want you to get trained properly. I, uh, that now put onus on them, not, not letting them off the hook. The stay in your lane get, lets people off the hook. I, I've been resisting the temptation to, to cross-reference Christian Conti for the 19th straight episode, <laughs> but um, he, uh, he was on before. I don't know if you know him, Johnny. He's, he's from uh, Pennsylvania. He's from in the Pittsburgh area. He's a psychologist. He's um, training in prison systems, and he developed this thing called yield theory, where, which is basically meet people where they are. And he, he's proud to say that he literally went – he wanted to change the way that prisons are run. He literally went into prisons – to do this, right? So right. literally meeting people where they are. You literally went to a, a gun shop to figure out this yep. thing that, about which you had no knowledge. That's what we're talking about. Mike literally went to the mental health community and was like, teach me what you know. And now we've got, again, I'll say literally, because it's literally happening. I'm not misusing the word, which is common these days. <laughs> um, physicians are literally, and, and PhD you know, holding psychologists who study this stuff are literally going to Mike, the, the gun guy, and saying, help me understand this. This is what we're talking about. This is what's required. And when you yell at people or you shut down conversation, what you further do is is inflame the limbic response. You, you elicit fight or flight and defensiveness, which shuts down cognition. And people are unable, unable incapable of receiving new information into their frontal lobe to change their minds if they need to. So, the yelling and screaming and invalidation is not working. That's We can't do that. We have to invite people in and we have to humble ourselves with curiosity to say, what am I missing here? I need to understand yeah. why this is so reactive and, and inflammatory. What am I missing instead of just like f continuing to flame each other? So I'm really proud of you doing that. I'm, I'm really proud of Mike doing that. I'm proud of all the people I know. I, I think I know who he's talking about. Um, and it's and it makes me proud to be a part of a, an, a, an organization and a movement that is trying to bring these two cultures together. And that's really what it is. When we say bridging the gap between, it means somebody has to leave their little perch and go into the other person's camp and vice versa. And then the more often we do that, the, the, the smaller the gap gets, hopefully. And, and if we're modeling this for other people, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, that sounds really scary. Yeah, it is. It's scary to have to evaluate your beliefs and maybe let go of some of them. Um, but at least know where they come from at bare minimum. So you're not just, you know, knee jerking every time somebody says something you don't like, or seems apparently to attack right. you. So, um, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate you covering that. Yeah. And I, and I always, I understand people have different motivations, but a lot of times I'll just say, look, even if you don't care to hear what people have to say, I'm like, for your own sake, don't you want them to hear everything you have to say? You know, at the very least, be selfish about it at the very least be selfish about it and say, look, I want that person to hear everything I said. And what I've learned um, is people, as you're saying, are going to be more likely to sit there and listen to everything I have to say, fairly calm and respectful about it. So obviously we all have different types of interactions every day. Now, if I'm just trying to 
you know, be angry in the moment and just say, oh, you know, screw you or something and walk away, whatever that happens, you know, obviously in life, I'm not saying you're going to sit down with every single person you walk across. I mean, obviously, but if you genuinely have a cause, you genuinely have, you want to effectuate some sort of change and, and maybe see if someone will listen to you, then that's the only real way you're going to be able to do it. You know, and so people, I guess, kind of don't realize that it goes back to us before. Then they try to force things and then it's just a back and forth of whoever's in power. And um, frankly, that's why I am kind of proud what I've done over the years. I was saying before, because I don't have any power. I mean, there's different types of power. We know that. But to the extent that I have any power, it's referential power. It's 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 kind of expert power. I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I have a, a business here and so forth, but aside from that, I don't have any power in the community. I'm not a politician. I'm not a lawmaker, right? Uh, you know, I'm not a billionaire. You know, all the things I don't have, a, uh, you know, a million followers, all the things associated with typical power in terms of the money, masses, media, right? All those kind of M's. I don't have any of that. So to the extent that people, you guys wake up on a Saturday and have any interest in what I have to say, it's, it's really solely because I said, I'm going to be completely independent. And, and I'm going to be as genuine as possible. And it goes back to what we started, the, I think, the conversation off with was, you know, Mike, you're asking about kind of the preface and how did I come into this? And I told that, and I don't disclose much. I don't really like to. If you look at my social media, you won't see one personal thing about me or my family or anything. It's very, I try to be very business and, and everything in public. But I disclosed that story as to like going to the gun range. And at the time it was my girlfriend. And I disclosed that because I said, so I want to be honest with people, you know, you got to just be honest with people and be genuine. And then people will, I think people appreciate, you know, genuine nature. You know, when you look at an actor or anyone, when, when things are believable, when they're genuine, you know, you feel it more. And so um, in certain contexts, disclosure is very powerful, right? So but the problem is it gets overused, right? And so there's all these kind of, with all due respect to, to victims and their families and what have you, there's a lot of this overuse of these like apostrophe laws and this and that, and it's very high emotionality, high emotionality. And so it creates desensitization, right? When everything is super emotional at all times, people just start checking out and then it looks contrived. And so it's like being more careful about when we say things and when we use emotion and, and what have you. And uh, that's why listservs, by the way, I don't know if anyone's on any listservs, they're a complete nightmare. I don't care who you talk to because it's just constant, you know, just like social media, it's just like constant, like free association of thought. And a lot of times people don't think about, you know, when should I say something? When should I not? It goes through your saying before, Mike, and I actually did it like this guest editorial years ago, a few years back now. And I posed the question to my colleagues in the state, for example, when are you off duty as a psychologist or as any professional? Because in other words, what I was seeing was I was seeing psychologists, they post something, right? So they post a picture of their family. Then they post a professional article that they had an opinion on. Then they'd post something else. And I'm like, but they were using their title, you know, as well. Like oh, I'm a psychologist, blah, 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 or whatever. But then it's like mixed in with all these other posts. And I'm like, which, which one? So then they get to hide, right? It goes back to the accountability. They get to kind of function in this limbo state where if you call them out and say, wait a minute, no, but that's my personal opinion. Well, you're not making it clear <laughs> where your personal opinion is, where your professional opinion is. Whatever. And so it, 
again, I guess, you know, not intentionally, but I guess the theme of the day, maybe it's just one of my overarching worldviews is that accountability thing. It's like, I just want to know where people stand, you know, and, and if we can somehow diffuse some of the emotionality and some of the secondary gains that people get from, you know, that, that moment, but it becomes boring. Right. And so that's a whole nother conversation about the headlines are more interesting, the clickbait, the, this, the, that, I think the, the beginning of the book, you'll see a, a cite something about like the typical, obviously we know the typical post is like 40 characters or whatever. And, you know, tension span for media clips is like 10 seconds or whatever it is, you know, and, and that's an issue we have to contend with guys, because, you know, again, we're sitting here, you know, for an hour and a half, I think going through important issues and we're only scratching very much. We're just scratching the surface as you, as you well know. So how do we actually get people's attention, you know, in a, in a, in a world where light speed, the attention span is fading. You know, this is, I'd like to think we're entertaining, but I, I use a silly example. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I say, if I post my book, I'll get 10 likes. If I post a picture of my dog, you know, interacting with my book, I'll get a thousand likes. Yeah. It's true. I kind of have to sit there, you know, not to play the victim, so to speak, but I think you can relate to what I'm saying. It's like, I have to sit there and say, okay, at what point am I, what point am I staying true to my principles as, as a professional and as a person, obviously, at what point would I be selling out? But there's that middle ground where it's like, no, it's not just one or the other. It's trying to somehow find that, that way of communicating, you know, I was saying before to a population that doesn't have a lot of time, is tired, that's going through things. And we have all this information, you know, like you said, 650 page. How do I convey that? You know, if only people only have two minutes and how do I, how do I give service to that? So the best thing that I could try to do, or at least I'm trying to do, which is similar to you guys at this point is just try, it's like reach one, teach one, right? It's like, just try to work with other medical and mental health professionals, because I'm not, it's kind of like the messenger, right? If you think like Malcolm Gladwell, like influencers and messengers, and that's the, that's where I find my little humble role as best as possible. Like you guys, you know, I wrote a book and I appreciate you saying all these good things about it, but in and of itself, it has no relevance. It's, it's like currency. Like it's, it's only good when it's used and you guys found something maybe useful in it. And then you're going to tell the next person and that's how it spreads. That's the only way to do it. And so I have to sit there in my, you know, living room at five in the morning and convince myself that that might happen in the future, whether it does or it doesn't. I don't know. No one's giving me any money for it. No one's giving me any guarantees. I just have to trust that it's the right thing to do. And maybe someone else will 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 agree with me. And then and so I'm really fortunate that you guys uh, I'm really grateful to you guys. You know, I appreciate you coming on. It's um you know, to your point about what do you post, I think you can be both. And I think we need to start pushing that message. This is just me. Um, I, I like, I like pushing the message that people are multifaceted and very deep and infinite and have infinite potential to be many things. I am not solely marriage and family therapist. I'm not solely dad. I'm not solely husband. I'm not solely washed up rec league baseball player. Uh, but I am all (laughs) of those things. And so when somebody goes, well, how can you do 
It's like, yeah, I am. So I think that begets what you say, accountability. Accountability starts with authenticity and transparency. Now, right. how, tra- how transparent do you want to be with your family? I don't know. But um, but you can you can own all the decisions and all the behaviors that one ever does, right? And say, yeah, this is this is fully me, right? And to your point about the attention span, man, we debate this with uh, Kevin, our marketing guy, all the time. What do we do to get to drive traffic, right? So it's is it short 30-second videos that we can boost on Instagram, long-form podcast, um, short-ish uh, informational videos on YouTube? And the answer is all of it. We do all of it because all of it. Yeah. Um, I think there's a there's an appetite and a market for all of it. And, and I got to believe, too, that as people are getting desensitized to the emotional flashpoints that are being thrown their way, with the clickbait and the yellow journalism and the screamy headlines and all that stuff, I think people are starting to just wear out and they want long form conversations like this one. So uh, for my chair, we'll just keep doing this because um, somebody's going to find value in it at some point, even if it's a year and a half from now when they're like, I am burned out on talking points. I'm going to go dig deep into podcasts and they find us two years later. Awesome. That's great. I hope it helps somebody, you know? Exactly. Mike. Well, <laughs> I think uh, I think we got to have you back on for sure because there's a lot of stuff I didn't even get to, and I know we're you know we're we're pushing up against it. Um, I, I I do have one question I want to ask you, um, Godfather. I'll call you the Godfather of mental health and firearms. <laughs> right. Thank Bible, you. Right. Um, how do you how do you tend to your your mental health? You personally? Oh, thank you. It's a great question. Geez, well, I'm happy you asked me that question now and, uh, you know, 10 years ago or something. I had no idea even what that meant, you know, kind of growing up is a whole nother conversation, but also even through school and everything. It was always this kind of side point like, oh, don't forget about your mental health or vicarious trauma or, you know, these kind of buzzwords as you're going through school. But at the same time, the professor is kind of mentioning that on one hand, they're just loading you with work on the other hand. And, you know, you got to work on some, you know, so it was never an actual real thing for me until uh, once I got out of school. Now, if people could do it before that, you know, God bless them. But for me, it's something I've, I've had to develop over time and really work on. And I guess, you know, what I would say just as a practice, from a practical standpoint, I, um, you know, I exercise every morning and it kind of, in a way it throws off my day because of course I could use that hour, um, you know, for other things, but I just keep reminding myself that that is, you know, that is part of my day. And I, and I must do that. You know, I know that for myself. And so exercise for me is really important. Um, you know, frankly, each morning. And I also have children and a fan and so forth uh, and a wife and and what have you and a a puppy and all this stuff. So that, you know, kind of my family time and my exercise time is really critically important, but just from a maybe more um, overarching standpoint as a professional, especially in the forensic arena, you know, we, we put out an article, I think it was last year, vicarious trauma, burnout, compassion, fatigue, these things. Um, you know, that's, that's a, something that's not talked about, you know, in that article, we spoke about like gallows humor, you know, especially in the forensic arena and, and a lot of professions, medical and mental health, you know, we kind of make jokes about things, you know, about clients or this or that you know, to try to get through it, you know, to ease the anxiety of it. You know, you see this obviously, and especially in tough professions, but we see it really anywhere. And I think for me, the, the biggest thing I try to do is, um, that goes to what Jake was saying a little bit is, 
being authentic with everybody, just treating, treating everybody with respect. And it's like, well, how does that, how does that help your mental health in a, in a way? For me, it, it, it helps keep me grounded, you know, just as a general rule, it helps keeps me humble, you know, and I, I'm not the most humble person in the world. You know, I was, <laughs> I really had to learn somebody and I can get arrogant pretty quickly. I mean, you know, I have that Southern Italian, North New Jersey uh, style that, you know, if you start challenging me, you know, you know, you'll, you'll see it come out, you know? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm aware of that, but I try to stay as humble as I possibly can to the, you know, within my own personality. And one of the ways I do that is just, I don't care who the person calls me or who's in front of me or whatever. I just try to treat them with such respect, respect because I'm always afraid that I'm going to get too big of a head. And then, and then that's going to have a domino effect in my life because then I'm going to think, you know, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'm going to kind of start forgetting about the nuts and bolts of what makes me tick and my family and my day to day and what have you. So I just really try to do that, honestly, as like an overarching mentality. You know, when I when I need to pull out kind of the tough guy persona, you know, um, in a professional way, I'm not a, I'm not a personal tough guy. But, you know, look, when you get hit with a Sabina or when you're getting cross examined or something, you can't kind of just sit there and you know, be all humble. You got to step up, you know, in certain moments, obviously. Um, but otherwise I just try to, again, like be with you guys, you know, just, just talk, just we're human beings and whatever. And for me, that helps so much because um, the world, you know, I know it kind of sounds maybe like, you know, silly, but you know, it's that attunement with the world, right? It's like the world then f- feeds you that back, you know? So if I'm genuine with you and we're just talking, you know, straight up, and I'm getting a bad vibe back and then we're probably not clicking, you know? And so then I've learned, of course, as an adult, like maybe we shouldn't connect them. Maybe we don't have a good fit. And so, you know, it's like, I, I think people kind of struggle with that a lot because they say, well, how do I know who to gravitate towards or not? And that's where families get tricky, right? Because it becomes obligatory and all that stuff. So for me, I try not to fall into like ob- obligatory stuff. You know, it's more like, Hey, yeah, it's Saturday morning, but, I'm happy to be here with these guys because we're being genuine and we're just talking and, you know, it's just, you know, just straight up real stuff. You know, this is life. Whereas it could be Tuesday during the workday and I don't want to talk to this person because they're, they're not being that, you know? So, so that's kind of what I've learned to do a little bit is just making time for like real stuff in life, you know, and then, and not taking my work so seriously and going back to the idea of forcing it. Just because it's between the hours of nine and five doesn't mean I'm a punching bag. Doesn't mean I'm a dumpster. Doesn't mean, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean you get to kind of do whatever because I'm on the clock or whatever. So it's like, I've just learned that about myself about boundaries and like, you know, being genuine and trying to just gravitate and be around people who are, who are similar in that way. You know, we could completely disagree. People who disagree with me the most on issues, we get along swimmingly if we have that type of mentality and respect, you know, so that's, goes back to that idea of like communicating with people you're going to know like if you're trying to communicate genuinely with people and they don't want to hear it then you're wasting your time probably you know sadly so oh great godfather you are so wise <laughs> well, I, yeah we're all we're all trying to figure it out right we're i pray that your out. next book is a masculine book <laughs> exactly well Hope maybe that's a you know I don't want to invite myself. I think you you said maybe I can come back in 2022. You know I would think in another year 
or, or so. Um, we're going to have the handbook out. We're working on the manual for that firearm evaluation framework, that BF10. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, guys, honestly, if we check back in a year, we're going to have a lot of new developments, a lot of things to talk about. I think that handbook is really going to be that stepping stone um, that's going to get us to the action-oriented stuff. And there was some of the training stuff. And we just got to get this stuff into the hands of, you know, medical schools. And we got to start at the ground level. I mean, I know we're trying to get people who are already practicing. And that's important. But we got to get into that ground level of like you know, medical schools, graduate schools, you know, yep. training programs, colleges, you know, get it in there because, um, you know, we're on the same page. So thank you so much, guys. Pleasure's ours, really. Um <laughs> without, without you doing this stuff, you know, and, and I will point out, uh, very selflessly, you know, around the time that you're committed to your, your patient load and your, your daily work, you know, you, like you said, writing a little in the morning, write a little in the evening, the, at the weekends, um, before you know it, you got a full blown research project and a published book. And, um, that's really remarkable. And I think it's a gift to the community and certainly our folks are the people who follow what we're doing, um, who's, who subscribe to and believe in our mission, you know, it all originated from that. So if you're listening to this and you're like, ah, oh, I could never write a book. It's like, yeah, you can, you know, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, you know, you don't, you don't eat the whole elephant at once. Um, Hey, yeah. by the way, who are, uh, Haley Wexler and Robert Kramer, which probably mentioned them. Yep. So they're, they're, uh, psychologists, um, in, uh, they're in, couple different states now it's hard to keep track of where people is Haley's I think on the west coast still she's a practicing psychologist now and Rob Kramer um, is a professor um, who was trained at University of Alabama we I came up with Rob when I was at John Jay Alabama and John Jay had a really close connection and so he's a brilliant guy in terms of the suicide uh, arena and Haley was uh, is fantastic she's forensically trained we've all kind of been forensically trained um, different programs and um and so they're colleagues and um, the book I'm writing now is with Sarah DeMarco and she's in my practice and we do these evaluations every day. So I think what you're going to see again, moving forward, because I am proud of that book and I appreciate everything you said about it. But I think the next book, what you're really going to see is, you know, literally again, the hands on kind of, this is what we deal with on a day to day, you know, so that that's the evolution, right? That's what we're working towards. That kind of book was like, it needed to be done. It needed to be laid out. And now we're pushing into, you know, applying this stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, it's just organic. I I guess it's the only word I could really think of, you know, when I try to think of what my motivation is and so forth, because again, (laughs) You know, essentially not gotten a dollar for anything. It's never really been about that. It's just, uh, I mean, at least directly. I mean, obviously indirectly you get referrals and stuff, but it's just this organic desire. I think when you're a scientist and you're trained that way, I was trained as a scientist practitioner, you know, it's just ingrained in you. Like you try to find out the truth, try to get the answers, try to get to the bottom of it. And, um, and, and, you know, I, I'd like to say this before I leave, because I could be really critical. I mean, if you look at my Facebook posts, if you look at some of the stuff I said today, I could be really critical and even call people on names. You know, I said Rutgers and and I just want to be really clear again. It's not it's not a personal thing. It's just it bothers me at such a level. Some of this, because these are the same people that I was sitting next to in class. You know, these are the same people who taught me. These are the same people who are like, I really believed in the science. You know, I really believe like this is the scientific method. This is how you approach it. 
this is the objectivity that we're supposed to move forward. And so when I see the politics come in, it's like such a visceral reaction I have, you know, when I, when I feel like we're vacating, you know, our principles as, as professionals. And so um, I really want to say that because honestly, you can see me come out with some really critical stuff and some snarky stuff that I will say. And it's, it's really I want people to know coming from a place of, um, I don't want to sound like silly about it, but it's like almost like hurt in a way. Not that I know these people personally, but it's like hurtful in the sense like, come on, like we're all trying so hard. We're all working so hard, you know, to to get this stuff across. We went to school for a million years. You know, we're pounding the pavement every day. Why are you doing this? You know, you're setting us back. You know, you're please stop. You know, so it's kind of more of like that that you'll see out of me. But I, you know. No, I, I try to I try to hold my tongue as Mike kind of was suggesting before. I, I try as best as I can. Sometimes I can't, um, and I and I kind of get frustrated. But the, I keep trying to tell myself just just overshadow it. Just keep working hard. Just keep putting out the stuff that's that I believe is right and 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 you know and strong guidance and whatever. And just keep pushing that. And the kind of eventually that'll overshadow a lot of it but the the political thing you know there's not much we can do about that we just have to keep pushing forward i i want to validate that before we go i have so many stories that i will not share now but maybe sometime over beer we can talk about it but i know exactly what you're saying and and it is hard and it is hurtful it hurts when you see people abandon principle for whatever they abandon it for and I, I totally identify with that. I've experienced it in my own community. It's, you're not alone. It's, it's hard, man. So, uh, well, that all being said, thank you very much, Johnny Pirelli uh, from New Jersey for coming on. The book is The <laughs> Behavioral Science of Firearms. You can find it anywhere books are sold, really. Uh, it's about 65 to 70 bucks on Amazon. Uh, it's worth it. It's a very easy read. It's kind of the theoretical, conceptual, uh, background-laying, uh, preeminent book on mental health and guns. And uh, the next one that comes out sounds like it'll be more practical, application-oriented. So I'm excited for that. Uh, how do we? Pe- how do people get a hold of you? Uh, so easiest way is check out my website is gperelli.com. G P I R E L L I dot com, and you'll see a lot of stuff on there. And uh, probably get any information you want and if if anyone needs any other kind of articles or anything that we've written you'll see my cv and all that stuff is on there just send me an email we'll you know we can get you some of the articles we've written and again we publish in different areas as well so um reach out any any time you know um we're only licensed in those couple states by us so you know we're really limited from a practice sense but we're happy to talk to people well, we appreciate it. So on behalf of our title sponsor for the podcast, Arms Corps, uh, and on behalf of Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada, and on behalf of our entire Walk the Talk America family, uh, thanks for listening. Please share around, subscribe, give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, don't leave this stuff locked up in your head. We're trying to all make Earth better together, and uh, the more people get exposed to it, the better off we all are. Uh, Thank you, Michael, for uh, doing what you do. Thanks, Johnny. And we will see you listening, audience, on the next episode. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. I just try to fight for consistency.